Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Reunion audio? You have a prepaid call. You will not be I'm Anna Dalvey, and this is the Anna Dalvey Show. You might recognize my name as a character in the Netflix series, but now you get to meet the real me. On this show, I will dive into the concept of rules and talk with the people who create or break them. From art, politics, fashion, tech, finance, law, and more, the Anna Delvey Show will share honest, unfiltered conversations that will question traditional notions of what's right and wrong, all recorded in my East Village apartment in New York while on house arrest. This week, I'm talking with Ben Vidicom. In the early 2000s, Ben had his finger on the pulse of the It Girl craze, covering the likes of Paris Hilton and Tinsley Mortimer. He even covered me, of course. Now he writes for publications such as New York Times and The Toddler, producing for television, and recently penned his first book. Hi, Ben. Thank you so much for coming. Hi, Anna. It's my pleasure. Nice to see you. <laughs> uh, you and me have known each other for a while. We met in 2021. Um, you wrote a piece about me for Tatler, That's right. I think, and then I got rearrested for ICE quickly after that. Uh, so tell us, what are you doing these days? Well, uh, just within the last 10 days, I had a documentary that I produced out on Hulu. It's called Queen Maker, The Making of a Knit Girl. And it's based in part on my 2020 memoir, which is a book called Gate Crasher. And a chapter in that talks about uh, the real uh, craze for New York City socialites and heiresses, as we called them, uh, between about 1999 and 2010. It was all kicked off by the Hilton sisters. And there was a wave of young women who came to New York and who wanted to, uh, uh, you know, embody that sense of American aristocracy. And the documentary walks you through how the women of that era, they hired a publicist. Who were the right photographers to get in front of? Uh, what was the strategy in terms of what red carpet should they be on? You know, what uh, junior committees for local philanthropy should they be on? And the documentary has a real twist because one of the uh, preeminent bloggers of the era has since transitioned into uh, being a woman. So uh, Morgan Livia Rose, her name is. And her story epitomizes really what many of these other women were trying to do, which was become the socialite archetype. So it's a lot of fun on Hulu. Yes. Um, so what does gossip mean to you these days? Oh, gosh, gossip has uh, changed so much. So for your listeners who are not aware, uh, I'm originally Australian. I came to New York in 98. Uh, and with a co-writer, Horatio Silva, we founded a online fashion gossip column called Chic Happens, which was one of the first ever internet gossip columns. It was before Perez Hilton. Uh, Perez or Mario, as we knew him then, was, was an intern at Star <laughs> Magazine. He was just this kid around town. Uh, it was before Gawker, but before all the big, uh, better-known ones. So we started this online fashion gossip column, and I became a newspaper gossip columnist off the back of it and ended up uh, in 
managing editor of TMZ in 2009 and uh, sort of got sick of gossip at that point and have worked consistently for the New York Times since then. All of that's in my book, Gatecrasher. But in those days, uh, you know, we were traditional media and we were the gatekeepers of gossip. And so gossip was what we decided it was. And that really exploded in 2010 with the introduction of social media and, of course, celebrities and notable people or even normal people who became celebrities really controlling their own narratives. So now you have Demois, for example, which old grizzled gossip hags like me hate because we're like, none of, none of this is true. This is just publicists <laughs> sending this in and it's not vetted. So it is a bit ironic that we gossip journalists are, you know, saying, oh, if this isn't journalism, what about standards? Uh, I'm sure I that think, would... I think the big thing about Demois is like kind of they weaponize just the general, like anybody on uh, Instagram... It's like if anybody, like now everybody's a paparazzi pretty much. Like if somebody sees you in a city and they just submit a photo. Oh, it's a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone has a camera and a recording device in their hip pocket. Yeah. And, you know, uh, a question I was asked when I was a gossip columnist was often, why is the media so interested in celebrities? And my mm -hmm. response was always, that's a ridiculous question. What, you, you never ask why is the media so interested in, interested in magazines about golf or baking shows. It's, yeah. you know, there's no media interest. It's just what people are, are interested in. You might as well ask why is a supermarket so interested in carrots or eggs? <laughs> you know, it's because people want it. Yeah. Um, so uh, and the secret thing that we, we can never really say because it would offend the audience for our mm -hmm. gossip was the problem is the audience. It's not the journalist. Yeah. It's because people are hungry. I mean, you in your own life have experienced it. People love to see personalities built up and torn down. It's a spectator sport. Uh, it is like the gladiators arena in Rome. And the it's, it's the massive public hunger for this bloody spectacle of mm -hmm. celebrities being ripped apart in front of them. And now that everyone has their own recording device, they're, they're doing it for themselves. Mm -hmm. So the problem was never really the gossip press, in my opinion, as a gossip reporter, former. Uh, the problem is that people love to see it. Yeah. So it's a bit like a two-way street it's they're feeding the appetite and they're also creating well it's really eating itself because yeah. you, now we have the phenomenon of the main character on social media or twitter and we all know you don't want to be the main character i mean on on yesterday it was some poor woman like kind of a nobody who did this long twitter thread about analyzing her privilege because she went to see Taylor Swift. And she was just mocked left, right and center because who are you? And, and she calls herself a public figure, which is, I think, opened the gates to ridicule because she has 8,000 followers. And people are like, who is this girl? Like 8,000 followers? So she goes, as a public figure, I'm interrogating my privilege going to Taylor Swift. And it honestly it was pretty innocuous. Yeah. It was mildly obnoxious at best, but there was just this you know, feeding frenzy of regular users on Twitter piling on her, you know, tearing her apart, taking their bit of flesh, the poor woman was chased off Twitter. And that's the, the phenomenon we see. You, you, you don't want to be the main character anymore. So I think the, you, you, the danger is that you are both audience, but if you put a foot wrong, you know, you could be the target as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what's like your relationship um, like now with Twitter, for example, now that if after Elon Musk bought it. <laughs> uh, I'm not an Elon fan. Uh, I do observe it because, you know, I'm a communications professional, so mm -hmm. it behooves me to know what's going on in the world. Um, I, I post very minimally. I was obliged to get back on to promote Queenmaker because I was a producer. I'm in the show and, like, I can't not promote it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I hate it. And, you know, it's. I think one of the problems with social media is that it really privileges and advantages 
like the worst people, the most shameless people, the biggest narcissists who just want to talk about themselves all day and just want to sell something. Look, and that's fine. I'm a capitalist. Sell something. Make make, make your bag. I don't care. Make make your coin. But uh, many of us are not built like that. And I think it really, I think you get kind of steamrolled if you don't really feel like talking about yourself all day, every day. Um, mm-hmm. So consequently, I don't post unless I would be doing a disservice to, you know, Hulu and the, and the production company that made the, the film. I, I've yeah. got to support it, but I would prefer never to post. Yeah. So what's like your favorite platform these days? Oh, uh, well, um, I do enjoy TikTok for all the stupid reasons that everyone does. Uh, and uh, But even that is, is you know, deteriorating in front of our eyes. Uh, look, I, I like a dumb video as much as the next person, but... Uh, I'm horrified by this sort of cult of fake expertise that like the 18 year olds have. Yeah. Let me tell you how to give you give you a you know give your own freckles by yeah. poisoning yourself with this <laughs> stupid ink you bought online. Like there's such such bad advice on TikTok. Uh, if I were a parent, I think I would not allow my children to have access to TikTok because there's just so much terrible advice. <laughs> do you do you use TikTok yourself or you just Oh no. Me? Oh no one needs to see that. No, no. <laughs> so how do you feel like um your job changed after the like the explosion of social media? Oh, sure. It became much less relevant, to be perfectly honest. Um, I'm fortunate that I write for the Times when they want me to. Uh, And so uh, I think the Times is one of the few institutions that has successfully navigated the current media era. Mm -hmm. They are making money. Most are not. Uh, I think the New Yorker, weirdly, is another success story. They massively increased the cost of their subscription because they moved the burden of paying for their publication from the advertisers, which went away mostly, to the subscribers. So those are two success stories. Most legacy publications are not thriving, even like the giants of Condé Nast. I mean, that Mm -hmm. place is a ghost town now. Um, You know, Vogue and GQ are not doing so well anymore. That's that's horrifying. So uh, unfortunately, so to answer your question, there just aren't the legacy employers for dinosaur-era folks like me that there used to be. Yeah. And I feel like all of this, like, publishing houses, like, in the end, they are forced to cater to advertisers, like, whether they want it or not. Oh, they wish. Yeah. They, they barely have any advertisers anymore. <laughs> I mean, when I one of the big criticisms of Chic Happens in, like, 1998 was we used to mock Vogue because they were so beholden to advertisers. They yeah. would never run a critical runway review of one of their advertisers because yeah. they were, they relied on it so much. And we said that that was not good journalistic ethics and that they, they you know, basically you could buy your coverage in Vogue. Yeah. Uh, which was, you know, a business model which was very successful for them for a long time but has gone away. I mean, Vogue is thin now. Yeah. What would you say being, um, just being cancelled mean today? Like <laughs> versus? <laughs> um, I, I do think go. that being cancelled is real. This, this is one of those... Endless online debates. Some people say, well, there's no such thing as being cancelled. There's only uh, consequences for wrongdoing. Other people say, no, it's being real. And I I think that in general there's a lack of grace Mm -hmm. and there's a lack of any assumption of goodwill. So the problem with it, I think, is that everyone just assumes that everyone else has the worst possible intentions. Mm-hmm. And honestly, there are some people who deserve to be cancelled. Uh, but in a lot of cases, honestly, just give the person a break. I mean, they may have misspoken, they may have, you know, said the wrong thing in the moment, but I think we need to learn to forgive each other. If the person is sorry for what they did, if mm-hmm. not, then, you know, 
fuck them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I think that we, we are too quick to execute the main character on social media. So do you feel like is anyone uh, really like truly canceled? Or well, <laughs> they tried to cancel you. <laughs> But from what? <laughs> well, they stuffed you in a prison oh. twice. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think it's it's some people have the moxie to come back, uh, yeah. like like you did. I mean, the trouble with with the whole cancel debate is that it can push you into a really dark place. Because personally, you know, uh, I'm a leftist. I'm not as far left as younger people, I think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm from the era, era of liberalism, which is dead now, which is fine. Uh, but the people who are really fighting the hardest against so-called cancellation are some pretty grim people. And they're not people I would personally want to associate with mm -hmm. um, because they're some nasty folks. So uh, although I, I do think cancellation is sometimes unfair, at the same time, I do not want to align myself with the people who are complaining about it the most because I don't agree with them. Yeah. What's your take on Harry and Meghan and their relationship with attention? Well, again, uh, I'm very interested in this story because as a former gossip columnist, it was my job to pursue these people, not literally, not like a paparazzi <laughs> on a scooter taking pictures, but, you know, getting, you know, writing their secrets, it kind of was my job. So I did watch the documentary and I did read Harry's book, Spare. Mm -hmm. um, and I was intrigued to hear about what the experience was like for someone who was on the other side. And I would say it did positively affect my impression of the two of them. Mm -hmm. I think that when Harry spelled out um, how Meghan was persecuted by the press in England, who were much more vicious than the press in America has ever been, you know, I, 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 it did make me sympathetic towards them. Mm -hmm. Do I think Meghan is perfect? Absolutely not. Do I think she's kind of calculated? Yeah, I do. <laughs> But that's not a crime. I mean, and again, it's the old thing. Would, would a man be criticized for being calculated? Absolutely not. Uh, but she is. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I thought was really interesting about it is the way they described that Megan's job was to try to look good. Of course, she's, she's Hollywood, so she can turn the, 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 the wattage of celebrity on. Mm -hmm. But then she was criticized for that within the family because when she looked too good, she kicked the higher-ranking royals off the front page. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the cardinal sins from the family's point of view. So in that regard, I do think that she was in a no-win situation. Like, you've got to look good, but not too good. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the royal family is very strictly hierarchy, like regimented. There's, there's no question where you are in the pecking order. Um, obviously, Camilla, as the queen, is the, number, is the top dog. Mm -hmm. um, Her Majesty was alive at the time, of course, Queen Elizabeth. Uh, Camilla was sort of number two as the, as the wife of the Prince of Wales. Uh, and then Kate Middleton as mm -hmm. the queen in waiting. She, she's ahead of uh, Meghan. Yeah. And Meghan outshined them all, really. Yeah. Uh, and she was punished for that. So I, I did have a lot of sympathy for, uh, for them when I read that book. I, I also do take the point of people who say, well, look, you know, they're walking around with signs on their, on their carrying signs saying, don't look at us. They are clearly making their money out of media here in the US. Mm -hmm. And so you can't have it both ways. All right, you know, your, your lordships, if you're going to sell yourselves as media properties, then scrutiny comes with that. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I didn't entirely believe this story about the near-catastrophic paparazzi chase in New yeah. York. So I don't buy everything they say, but I, I do have sympathy for the position that they found themselves in. Yeah. Um, do you like, consume Australian media? Not You're so from much. Australia? <laughs> <laughs> Every now and then. There was a big fire in Sydney yesterday. I did see that. <laughs> 
Um, I'm wondering, like, what's the difference between, like, the U.S. media and the U.K. media and Australian media? Because I feel like all the English-speaking media, they kind of feed off each other, but they must be, like, catering to, um, like, the different sensibilities. There's a, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why I was attracted to come to New York City as a journalist is because this really is the, the world capital you know, yeah. the, New York City is the, is, the, is the capital of the world. And consequently, all the stories that I would be covering here as, or as an entertainment reporter, a gossip reporter, you know, 80% of those are relevant in any country in the world because uh, the United States exports celebrity. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're doing that kind of stuff in Australia, I mean, who cares? You're covering yeah. a rugby league star or, or a cricketer. It doesn't really <laughs> travel. But, you know, my mother um, in Australia would be looking in her local paper at pictures of parties in New York like the Met Gala or, you know, such and such a film premiere that I was at and I covered. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I think that... The, Certainly Australian media feeds off American media. Britain has more of a, of a star ecosystem in place, so they have a lot of, like, local celebrities. Uh, but, yeah, no, I think that uh, American culture, America exports culture. So for my job, it's interesting to be here. Yeah. Do you think Trump is going to make a comeback? Oh, I mean, I think he kind of never went away. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I do think that's a big risk, yeah. Uh, and of course, they called DeSantis Trump incompetent, which is even more um, blood chilling. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I think it's Trump has every possibility um, of coming back as president. Well, were you following um, the Twitter spaces and around DeSantis announcing his campaign? Uh, I did not try to tune in, which was just as well because I would not have been able to. <laughs> I, I to. I, we tried. I, I was here with a friend, and it just kept crashing nonstop. Right. It was. Uh, it was interesting. Well, what I find instructive about that is that DeSantis is clearly taking bad advice. Yeah. Um, and for, for two reasons. One is just the instability of the platform, just yeah. the basic can you hear the guy speak? Well, no, you can't. So that's a problem. Um, so just the functionality and the technical aspect. But also I think it was a real strategic error because, you know, Elon Musk is going to steal the limelight. Why would he partner with another narcissist, you know, megalomaniac <laughs> in what should have been his moment to shine? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't agree with DeSantis at all. In fact, I loathe his policies. I, th- I think that that his his anti-gay and anti-trans policies in, in Florida are basically a war crime. So I have no sympathy for him whatsoever. But as purely a strategic move, how stupid he was. Why would yeah. you share the spotlight with Elon Musk? Because he's going to take it from you. And he did because the story became Elon. <laughs> yeah, so. I think because it's like he was thinking that Trump is not using Twitter and he could right. take over that platform. I think that was his main. Um... Uh, that's what Elon told him. <laughs> Look, it has become a very right-wing place in the, yeah. in the months since Elon has, has ordered. And all those idiot blue check marks are trying to sell their AI courses. Oh, my God. these They were NFT grifters and then they jumped on crypto and they were crypto grifters and now they're AI grifters. All those idiot men <laughs> with their stupid threads and buy my course. Ah, oh, such morons. <laughs> Uh, and I feel like he's done a big disservice with the blue check marks. Um, oh yes, with making yes. it just <laughs> available to for everybody to buy. It was such a like yeah, it's really hard to navigate. It feels like now it's flipped. Yeah. Whoever does not have a blue check mark, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the ones with the one you should stay away from. <laughs> right, exactly. I think I think the blue check marks are well. It's they're they're a, they're a badge of ideology, yeah. and it's a particularly kind of anarcho-capitalist libertarian. Um, you know, 
honestly selfish, horrible way of being, in my opinion, is and a lot of people want to align themselves to that. So the blue check mark has become a badge of solidarity with your, you know, Elon Musk kind of like pirate capitalist. Yeah. <laughs> you really don't like Elon Musk, do you? <laughs> I don't. No, I don't. I think he's a horrible person. And I think that he's a good reason that the human race should not be on Mars, frankly. Because if, 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 and Jeff Bezos is the same because yeah. they are, look, these are highly effective men and they are in some regards, you know, creating progress. Mm-hmm. It's good that we have electric cars. We're probably inevitably going to have space flight. These are two men mm-hmm. who are pushing that. So that's good. But when I look at how utterly selfish and horrible they are, I'm like, we should not be exporting our species to other planets if this is how we behave. Huh. I'm becoming a supervillain as I get older. I'm like, yeah, basically just release the virus. The problem with a planet is basically people. Do you think we are on the brink of class war? Oh, I think we're always on the brink of class war. I think, unfortunately, now we're on the brink of, brink of class war with weapons. Yeah. So I, I um, but it's just human nature to be envious um, and to care about other people's status. Um, so yeah, uh, and but social media certainly exacerbates the uh, divisions between people, uh, and um, it always emphasizes the negative. Um, so yeah, I think social media is making the possibility of class war uh, much more imminent and much riskier. Yeah. Do you want to like say something about your rules on journalistic integrity, and if huh. you like, if you specifically follow any, yeah, any standards, or like, how did you observe? Like a few colleagues, <laughs> like any interesting stories about that? Because I feel like there's just so many situations where so many journalists kind of like end up in situations with gray area and it's oh sure no avoid. I think that's a good question and it was something that I I frequently had to defend myself on as a former gossip columnist because you know fair enough people think gossip colonists have no integrity. Um, And my response to that was always, well, you can do any job with or without integrity. You can be a cab driver or president of the United States with integrity or without it. So I do think that it's something that you bring to the job and uh, even as a gossip columnist. So you do need to privilege truth. You do need to not write mean things because of personal vendettas. Mm -hmm. Um, You can't, you know, you can't be trying to privilege yourself or your own little spats. Uh, you do need to apologize if you get something wrong and run a correction. Um, and, and but, but at the same time, not be paralyzed that you might get something wrong as long as you don't have an agenda, as long as you assume good faith. Uh, if someone says, what you, someone says you messed up, which, you know, I did occasionally, um, then you run a correction and if, and if appropriate, an apology. So I, um, I think it's not, not, there was a famous scandal in New York, gossip press around 2006 where various reporters at page six the preeminent new york city gossip column were revealed to be taking cash and gifts in in exchange for um positive coverage and the great irony is that's not actually illegal it's illegal if you're an influencer to not um tag your spawn con as ads Mm -hmm. but it's not illegal for a journalist to take cash there's this bizarre loophole in the law which i've never understood um, and indeed, some of the reporters who were found to be keeping c- c- taking literal cash bribes, like bags of cash, kept their jobs. Others got fired. <laughs> um, so uh, I would say just it's it's the same ethics you learn in grade school. Like, don't be corrupt. Don't take cash, uh, and do your best. Yeah, yeah. I know, um, like journalists, you know, like an insider, they are not allowed to accept any gifts over like $100. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and I was like, it's wild because 
like, I don't know, Anna Winter gets sent gifts all the time that are, like, much higher than this. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, at the Times, um, they have a very strict policy, even for freelancers, which is tricky as as journalism becomes harder to make a living from. Like at the times, if you've ever accepted like a press trip, like for travel, mm-hmm. like that would disqualify you from from writing for the times, um, even if you don't, even if you're not writing about travel. Um, so it, it is trickier. Hmm. So um, yeah, so nobody can like pay for like your way to go to an event. Oh no, to no, cover? no, absolutely not. Yeah. Hmm. Does the Times cover it? Yeah, I mean, I um, I was the social columnist for a couple of years, so mm-hmm. I would go to the Golden Globes and I would go to the uh, Oscars. Yeah. Um, and, of course, on a regular night in New York City, I'd be, you know, bouncing around in cabs and on the subway. Um, so they would cover the expenses, yes. Yeah. Huh. So how does New York Times treat freelancers as opposed to their staff writers? That was always <laughs> interesting to me. <laughs> That's a contentious question. Uh, well, you know, the only this week's... Uh, the, the News Guild, which represents the Times employees, which the freelancers are not, um, only this week uh, came to a contract conclusion with their long-running battle with management. And it does expose a bit of a rift because management would prefer to hire freelancers like me because we are cheap. Uh, and, and, and indeed a detail that came out in the Times' own reporting was that the median salary of a New York Times em- reporter is 160000 mm-hmm. and I can and, 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 you know, with benefits. Uh, and I can tell you that freelancing does not pay anything near like that. that. Yeah. Um, and so management would prefer to rely on people like me because we don't get um, health insurance uh, we, and we don't make anything like that kind of money. Um, so the rep- I think the staff report is kind of view us as a threat. Uh, so it can be a bit lonely as a freelancer. And there's, there's kind of no one in your corner. There's no mm-hmm. ombudsman. You're dealing with the staff editors who, who you rely on for your gigs, but, you know, they're, they're not really in your, in, on your side because you're taking work away from someone who's in-house, and I, and I understand that. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, would you rather be on staff somewhere or would you rather be a freelancer? Well, that's a great question. Um, if the New York Times offered me a job tomorrow, would I take it? I mean, probably not. I, I mean, I, <laughs> I like my lifestyle. I mean, I, um, I, I'm Australian. Um, my family's in Australia. Um, just last year, my mother passed, and that required me to be in Australia for eight months um, as she got sick and then to handle her affairs after she died. So I've always – I need that flexibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, if I'd had a job at the Times, I would have had to quit to go and be with my mum. So, and, in fact, I did quit a job. I, I was the editor-in-chief of Avenue Magazine, which was a job that I loved. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had to, to quit in order to, to take care of my mother. So um, for me, the freelancer life has benefits. Yeah. How, so how do you choose which publications do you um, look right for? Whoever will have me, Anna. <laughs> I'm a freelancer. Look, it's I'm a jobbing uh, journalist. We, we take jobs. Uh, it's like, you know, I think actors have the same, you know, attitude a lot of the times. You just need to keep working. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously I wouldn't... Um, you know, one does have some standards. One has to keep the brand. I enjoy working for Tatler. I've written for Vanity Fair occasionally. You know, I write for the Times when they have me. Um, so I do like to keep, to keep it on that level. But also I have specialities. I, I write about high society and I write about Hollywood. Um, so I, I, you know, I wouldn't want to put that on deux mois, shall we say. Yeah. So you must be like really like deep in the world. So I'm wondering how do you balance the social and professional relationships? Because I'm sure it kind of like... Um, they mix. 
Oh, to some extent. Uh, I am saved because I never want to be friends with any of the people I write about. Uh, and I don't understand, and I think people who do, do a bad job. And mm-hmm. certainly in the celebrity world, when I was hiring junior reporters, you would be flooded with people who were applying for a gossip column job because they want to meet their favourite celebrity and they have this fantasy that they're going to become friends. And you really have to weed those people out because they will be terrible at their job. Uh, and yeah. the same way with covering the super rich. Like I, I cover the billionaire class. I don't be friends with these people. Um, I want to cover them as my subject. Um, so... Uh, I don't think that you can ethically do your job as a journalist if your real um, ambition is to insinuate yourself into the world of your subject. Yeah. Hmm. What would you say is the biggest difference between TMZ and New York Times? (laughs) (laughs) The spelling. Um, uh, You know, TMZ, I would have to say, had pretty high journalistic standards, Um, although um, different goals, shall we say. So um, it wasn't like TMZ was going through people's trash. Um, Just to give you some context... TMZ has a terrible reputation, fair enough, because in its earliest days, they had very aggressive video paparazzi crews. And those were the days when it was still new to have video cameras mm-hmm. on the street. It was before cell phone video. Um, so they were video paparazzi and they did hire some freelance cowboys who would try to provoke the celebrities that they were tailing because, of course, if the celebrity gets angry and retaliates, that's a much better segment, right? Um, so there was a bit of that right at the beginning and that gave them a terrible reputation which they never outlived even after that, long after they stopped doing that practice. So they did get a lot more respectful um, but I think are forever tarnished by, you know, their tactics at the beginning. Um, look, my only complaint with TMZ is that it's trivial. I think gossip has to be interesting and so much of on TMZ.com is just not interesting. It's like micro movements in a court case about someone you've kind of half cared about and I don't know, I just think TMZ can be boring. Uh, and uh, the New York Times, in my opinion, is not boring. <laughs> um, what about your book? When At what point did you decide now was the time to publish it? Oh, well, uh, I... It's a good question. Um, I had just started doing my uh, social column for the New York Times uh, and I, I had been out of gossip by that point for 10 years so I felt that I had some perspective on it um, and I think that there's a natural nostalgia delay and people at about the 15-year mark become interested in things that they remember as an older person and they're more willing to revisit and read about and also with a bit of distance you can have some critical clarity mm-hmm. about what you were doing, which is not always clear at the time. So specifically, I really wanted to revisit how the gossip press, me included, treated young women like Britney Spears, like Lindsay Lohan, like Paris Hilton, uh, and we were horrible to them. And, uh, and and again, there was a real public appetite for us to be horrible, horrible mm-hmm. to them. Um, there was that horrible picture which we ran on the front page of the Daily News. It wasn't even in the gossip section because it was too important that Britney had shaved her head. And there was a picture the Daily News ran of her with a large golf umbrella smacking the SUV of a paparazzi photographer. <sighs> and, you know, the media positioned that, we positioned that as, oh, look, she's crazy. And there was absolutely no sympathy for her whatsoever. There was no sense of this is a person who's having a mental health crisis. Yeah. And the way to treat that person is not put her on the front page and call her crazy. Yeah. So I think that we, I, I did want to interrogate those sins. Uh, and there are other things that I'm less ashamed of. Like I said, I, I always felt I did the job with integrity. But um, I think you have to own up to what you did wrong and it felt like the right moment to talk about how we mistreated those women. Yeah. 
So like you definitely have regrets about that era. Yeah, sure. Who were your favorites? <laughs> and the least favorites. <laughs> oh, well, I, you know, look, Paris would always have a chat. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I have a great deal of admiration for Paris Hilton mm-hmm. um, because I would see she, you know, she was a guest for hire. Mm-hmm. Uh, as she was getting more famous, her price tag went up, but she, you could pay her however many dollars and she'd come to your party. Yeah. And I saw her at so many awful parties and she always looked like she was having the best time of her <laughs> life. And I just had a lot of respect for that, you know, because yeah. she was hustling, she was making her coin, uh, and she was giving the people who hired her good value. And certainly the techniques that she pioneered of self-promotion 10 years before the social media era are the same techniques that everyone's 14-year-old kid is using in their bedroom right now. So she was quite a visionary uh, in terms of um, how to promote herself. Uh, And, you know, I think she was the first influencer. Yeah. Are you still friends with, or like, were you ever friends? With no, I was them? never friends with these people. <laughs> my point, I didn't. I never wanted to be friends with these people because yeah. I need. I needed the freedom to criticize them when I when when it was appropriate. For example, Paris Hilton could be terribly racist, and she would drop the N word when there were no black people around, yeah. uh, and there were recordings of that. And um, so, and I covered that, and because it's it's reprehensible how she behaved. Yeah. Um, so, although I respect how she managed the fame part, do I think she's a good person? Not really. Um, but professionally, you know, you can't take it away from her that she invented modern celebrity. But you know, when she's dropping the N bomb, you got to call her out on that. Yeah. What do you think about my type of celebrity? <laughs> <gasps> I think it's so interesting, and you know. Um, you very kindly invited me to a party you had in this space. <laughs> and I was really struck by all the young people who came here um, drawn by your flame. Um, and you are an icon to a particular kind of Gen Z New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And I, do, I say New Yorker because I think that you exemplify a lot of why people come to New York. Mm-hmm. Are you a saint? Hell no. But, you know, if you only want to meet saints, hang out on a Church, I don't know. People come to New York to meet interesting people and and you qualify. Um, So I I think that you are a very morally complex person. I think what makes you interesting is that people can have different opinions about what you did. Mm -hmm. Um, I know you're appealing your case um, and you have been very um, upfront about the fact that you you don't really think you did anything wrong. Well, yeah, I went to trial. Like I never took the plea, so. Right, uh... right. But look, people are talking about you over the yeah. kitchen tables and some people are saying, that Anna Dovey is a terrible person. And other people are saying, well, I don't know, she says she didn't do anything wrong, you look at it in a certain way. So that what makes you interesting, you can talk about you, you can have different viewpoints. And the proof of the pudding is that people are drawn to you. you know, I mean, your party was mobbed. Young people are drawn mm-hmm. to you. Um, so I think you are a complex person. I'm very honored to be your friend. Uh, uh, I don't think everything you did was right. But again, I don't have to, you know, I, yeah. I think I think you're you're an interesting case that's fascinating to discuss. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever been arrested yourself? No, I haven't. Thank God. <laughs> I'm, too vani- you- I'm too vanilla. Anna. <laughs> <laughs> Would you ever uh, be willing to get arrested for um, like a story? <laughs> oh, look, when I was in my 20s, um, I, I got my start in the in the what we called the gay media at the time, you know, the LGBTQ plus media, but it was in the 90s, we called it the gay media. Yeah. And I went to protests um, in London um, when I was in my early 20s. The big issue was, uh, well, for one thing, it was AIDS. So there, were, well, there was always an AIDS rally going on. But the big political issue was age of consent because 
they had partially decriminalized male homosexuality in the UK, but they made the age of consent 21, whereas it was 16 for straight people. So that was that last thing that you had to like knock down. As you, your listeners may or may not be aware, um, being gay was straight out illegal in most of the Western world until like the 60s. Um, do you know something I learned the other day, which is horrifying, by the way? What? When the Allies liberated the Nazi concentration camps, they obviously liberated the Jewish people, they left the gays in there because the gays were under were sentenced, according to the Allies, under a legitimate penal code. They didn't let the gays out. I only just learned that. Um, and so I bring that up. Um, we've had anti-gay laws in the West for a long time. In the 90s when I was young, uh, I certainly laid down, stopped traffic in protest, and, and I never got arrested. Plenty did. But, I, you know, the police would, like, drag you off by the scruff of the neck. So um, I've come close to it as, a, as an activist um, in, in my youth, but uh, I was never actually arrested. <laughs> Anna. Yes. Anna, I have some gossip for you. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so we just took a momentary break, and during that break there's a woman in the room who's a CNN reporter. Her name is Chloe. And she told me that she's married to Brian, who for years dated Tinsley Mortimer, uh, who was one of the stars of Queenmaker, and uh, Morgan Olivia Rose, who I mentioned, who was the, the former blogger who transitioned, loves to tell the story of the night that she stopped Brian from hitting me because, and I remember, Brian chased me around Tao, which was a nightclub of the moment one night. And Brian's like a big guy. He's like a personal trainer, like buff, or <laughs> looks like a personal trainer, uh, like lots of muscles, uh, very, you know, alpha male kind of vibe. And I did make some fun of Tinsley in print and maybe also Brian, you know, occasionally because I didn't treat them again to my point. I wasn't trying to be friends with these people. Uh, and Morgan loves to tell, tell the story about the, the time uh, she stopped uh, Chloe's husband from beating my face in. So we've come full circle. And by the way, don't forget to watch CNN so you can see this podcast on, on television. So, um, Chloe, please give Brian my regards. Please thank him for not punching my face in. And I hope you guys are happy. <laughs> so it's about like one big family. One big family. And, you know, there's a domestic violence hotline, I'm just saying. Should you ever need it? I'm not saying you do, but, you know, there's a, there's a number you can call should, you know, should, should the need arise. Would you like to explain to our listeners who, like, don't know what we're talking about a little bit more? And, like, maybe it's a good time to get into the show and um, just tell us more about it. How About Queenmaker? Yeah. Sure. Uh, so it is based in part on a chapter uh, from my book. And the first half of the documentary breaks down how if you were a young woman who arrived in the city around, you know, 2002-ish, mm -hmm. how you could become one of the socialites. And specifically, there was what we called the heiress trend um, because the Hilton sisters, Paris and Nikki, kicked off this fad for the young, very good-looking children of legitimate American aristocracy. The Hilton family obviously made their fortune from hotels in the 20th century, so they are American bluebloods. Uh, and then you have the Hearst cousins, a couple of sisters and one of their cousins, uh, who made their fortune from the William Randolph Hearst uh, publishing empire. Uh, and Casey Johnson, who was the daughter of the Johnson & Johnson, you know, pharmaceutical empire. Mm -hmm. Her dad, Woody, owns the New York Jets and became ambassador to the UK under Donald Trump. So, you know, really blue blood American families. And uh, they became famous for that. I also think it had a lot to do with the Disney princess trend, which throughout the 90s, it was all about the Disney princesses. And suddenly you had these women who seemed to embody that for real. Uh, and of course, a bit of a, a part of it too was 9-11 because we were all so sad after that happened that we, there was a desperate need in the culture for something that was just light, frothy, fun, like innocent fun. All of those factors came together pr to produce the heiress trend. 
And women like Tinsley Mortimer came to New York. She's from Virginia, I think, originally. And they would employ a publicist like Corey Hay or Nora Lawler who existed to, to shepherd these girls through society and make them famous. Tinsley, who's in the documentary, is a great example because she was very successful at it. Uh, she always dressed in pink. She was very photogenic. You know, she had the chihuahuas, as was required at the time. Uh, and she had a handbag line, also a necessary step. Uh, Dior named a shade of lip gloss after her Tinsley pink, which was a huge coup for her. Uh, and then, um, but she wasn't able to maintain the status. Uh, you, some of your listeners may be familiar with her from being on The Real Housewives for a bit. She dated uh, Fan Hu, which is a very wealthy sugar heir family who live in uh, Florida. Um, I read her book. It was like um, Order Fiction. Yes. Uh, I remember reading it. I was, uh, I think, like um, in my teens. Oh, is Chloe's husband in the book? What did she say? <laughs> <laughs> I don't recall. It was a very long time ago. Um, but yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, it probably wasn't great listening. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. um, so, so, so the first half of the documentary is, is just how did those women do it? So I think mm-hmm. people are going to be interested in that. Uh, there were two blogs that were um, quite prominent at the time. One was called Park Avenue Peerage. One was mm-hmm. called Socialite Rank. They were both covering the socialite scene. The Park Avenue Peerage blog, turned out, was written by uh, a young, at the time, male student living uh, in the University of, of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana in a mm-hmm. cornfield and blogging about the socialite world in New York, just looking at the pictures, just reading the gossip columns and doing it so per- persuasively that people thought, oh, this anonymous person must be an insider. Uh, it turned out to be uh, a person then identifying as James, Chris uncle, um, son of Indian immigrants. Um, and he, he was 17 years old, came to town uh, and Stayed for a bit. He, he got a job as an intern at New York Magazine. Didn't really take, to, I think, to the world uh, and then went back to Chicago. Fast forward 15 years, uh, I contacted James uh, to say, hey, do you want to be in this film we're doing mm-hmm. about that period? And the person who responded was Morgan Olivia Rose. It was a very glamorous, um, you know, woman living in Chicago. And she had transformed herself into a Tinsley-like person. Mm -hmm. And we do reunite uh, Morgan and Tinsley in the film. So the first half is based on my book, but I didn't know that uh, Morgan had transitioned. So the second half, honestly, is kind of much more interesting. And it's about this person's uh, story of transition and what she thinks of the socialite world 15 years later, and I don't want to spoil it, but she has a very different view of whether that world is attractive and the misogyny of that world now than she did then. Yeah. And uh, what was your role? You were... Um... Uh, I, I was a producer. Yeah. Uh, and I'm also uh, one of the narrators in the film. All right. And how long did it, like, how was the whole process? What was it like? Oh, long. It was long, <laughs> as long as doing another book. It took about two years. Yeah. Uh, I think we did interviews in the summer of 21, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just came out um, in May uh, 23 on Hulu. But it was interesting. It was a, it was a very different experience. And, of course, I didn't... Uh, uh, I didn't have any creative control. I was just my role really was to introduce the filmmakers to the people who were present at the time. Kelly Catrone, who is a, a publicist who gives great quotes, she had her own Bravo series back in the day. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh, I know her. Yes. I shout her out. Yeah, she's um, great. She like sent me a message wanting to come to my party. It's actually really funny. Um, let me see. I can actually play it for you. I love her. It's so, um, yeah. Um, I used to watch her show, um, The Republic PR. 
A yes. revolution? What was the People's name? People's Revolution. People's Revolution. Yeah. yeah, I used to watch the show when I was little. On Earth. M- yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, she's so cool. Her famous uh, catchphrase was, if you, if you have to cry, go outside. <laughs> so um, just giving some uh, context for um, the listeners. A friend of mine sent me this clip from um, Leah McSweeney's podcast. Let's, let's also not forget that the yes. reason you are the reason that Anna Delvey decided to come to New York and scam a bunch of people. <laughs> so this is a conversation between Leah and uh, Kelly. I didn't get invited. Did you? No. We did not get invited. Pat Marnell went. Go f***ing Anna Delvey. We want an invitation. I know. This is a call. Anna, let us know. <laughs> repeat guest. I've already come here twice. There's only been three guests, okay? I am. I challenge you. You f***ing do it, bitch. <laughs> so how do you see, like, Kelly um, in comparison, like, to somebody to, like, Arakui Hay? Oh, well, um, they sort of have different niches. Um, Corey Hay has a very interesting um, life story. He was involved with the Warhol crowd early on, as actually uh, Kelly was too. She married uh, a guy called um, Catrone, who uh, was one of the artists in that circle. Uh, and Corey now does... Um, Ronnie Catrone was his name, I think. Uh, Corey does uh, socialite wannabes as well as, uh, you know, other products uh, and very successfully can show you how to navigate that world. Um, Kelly is very deeply involved in the fashion world mm-hmm. and she will produce a fashion show and she will make sure that, she, you know, you don't have gate crashes in, in your front row if, if you want to show mm-hmm. New York Fashion Week, um, So, uh, which is a very hardcore business and she does it very well. Um, so Kelly is um, event pr- production, hardcore Fashion Week girl. Um, Corey handles the sort of... Uh, nuances of high society. Yeah. So what's like your relationship um, like with PR people as a reporter? <laughs> oh, I think we're, we're um, codependent, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we need each other. Um, something that a PR reporter, a PR, excuse me, a PR professional said to me when I was a young reporter in town was that they always prioritize their relationship with the press over the clients because clients come and go but press will always be there. So it is true that sometimes we get into fights, especially with the personal PRs in Hollywood uh, because they are ruthless and they tend to dislike the press greatly. Also, I think it's kind of an LA mindset. It's, it's a much more adversarial um, relationship between the press and the PR industry in Los Angeles because LA is a one industry town yeah. and the, therefore the PRs have much more power. In New York, the PRs have less power because there's much more going on here. So, for example, writing a gossip column in New York, you have the fashion industry, you have the art world, you have Wall Street and business to write about, you have book publishing, you have media, um, you have a thousand things to write about and the celebrity PRs have much less leverage because you can can really afford to piss them off and there's always something else to write about. Um, So I think in in New York, the PRs are more willing to deal. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I feel like the role also shifted um, for PR people with the rise of the social media. Um, 
because now a person like they don't need they don't necessarily need a PR um like oh, a PR true. person to like um, yeah. get something out yeah yeah I mean they they do and they don't some people do it really badly <laughs> <laughs> so I think look I think it's it's if you have the uh, talent to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. then you don't need a PR person, and many people do. But you know what? Some people don't. So I think there will always be a market for for uh, a, a qualified, competent public relations expert. Yeah. So it's like right now I'm still um, on house arrest and I'm um, prohibited from accessing any social media yeah, by the judge order. And this is kind of the main um, thing that I miss about not having a platform, just kind of assuming the control of the narrative. And I right. can't really like post something and announce something I'm working on on my project, I'm like relying on um, mainstream media to um, hopefully communicate the message the way I'd like them to. So that's interesting. Where do they draw the line between your access to media? Because you're doing a podcast. So that is something that is permitted under your circumstances? Uh, well, it's not social media. Right, okay. Yeah, it's just... Um, did, did, you, did you ask them? Um, yeah, that doesn't fall under the definition of social media. Okay, right, so, they, so they're given you a definition of social media. Um, they actually do not okay. give me a definition of social media. They, um, you would have to defer to your supervisor, I think. But did you ask your supervisor if I can, if I'm allowed to go on a podcast? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've been doing it for a while. Okay, All yeah, because right. <laughs> you do have a history of pissing off your uh, your, your supervisors and uh, and the authorities. <laughs> never violated like my criminal parole or um ice so like i'm on like day-to-day personal level like Uh, i've never really had any issues with um like people i have to deal with yeah on a daily basis it's like always kind of like the higher person the (laughs) who is upset um yeah i never had like nobody really gives me a hard time so you've told me that they they do follow your media uh, and that an issue they had earlier was that you, that you didn't seem very contrite, uh, and that kind of tweaked their nose a little bit. Uh, that was during my bond hearings, yeah. immigration bond hearings. The um, government used it against me, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's really easy, kind of like to twist anything. Sure. They used, for example, like headlines that were um, created by the editor, like "Sorry, not sorry." They uh, ascribed it as a quote of mine. Uh, yeah. Um, and it's, like, sad for me to, like, sit in that courtroom saying, no, I didn't say that. And it's like, well, but weren't you convicted of, like, lying and fraud? So you have no credibility. So it's, like, yeah, a, it's right. a weird setup. Yeah. <laughs> you don't really get, like, to argue back and forth. Right. Um, but, um, yeah. It's, it seems like you have to show a lot of obeisance. That's what they want. Like, you have to, like, get down on your hands and knees. And, you know, make them feel like they're the top dog is is a real part of the performance of the legal system. Yeah, yeah. I feel like just immigration and criminal, like, also, my experience was, like, very different because criminal justice system is just, um, it's, like, public. You can't access anybody's records. Like, you can go to people's court dates. Like, there are less secrets while immigration is civil. So, um, right you can't really access anybody's immigration records unless, like, they give it to you. So um, I think it, like, works both ways. Obviously, you have more privacy, but it's also less um, transparency mm-hmm. from, like, um, both sides. It's just, yeah, like, they can get away with much more. And you don't really have any updates, right, about how it's going. Like, it's a, it's a bit of a black box for you as, as someone who's going through the process of your appeal and, and the implication it has for your possible deportation. 
for now, yeah, well, we appealed everything. We just did not hear back. Um, yeah. We did not get the ruling, but it just takes a while. And um, yeah, that's another thing. There's only one uh, Board of Immigration Appeals in the country. Okay. Okay. Oh, um, wow, really? It's in Virginia, yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, and um, they don't have a deadline by which they have to respond. So they can take like a week or a year. Right. Um, yeah, and like they also um, separate detained and non-detained cases. So mm-hmm. usually they take longer for non-detained ones, um, which is like, okay, for my main case, but for my bond appeal, for example, like mm. I'd love to get a decision as um, sooner or later, but it is what it is. So um, how is your mental health holding up um, being under house arrest in not a very large space? Um, I mean, it's just like it's different every day. Like yeah. I'm trying to keep busy and not um, like just think about how um, <laughs> unfair life is. <laughs> right. Um like on the other hand, I could have just like left to Europe. I guess people, it's kind of upsetting that people don't really like give me credit for that. Mm-hmm. Um, like I could have left in 2021, um, but I chose like to stay and fight it. And like I spent so much time and money yeah. just like, yeah, going through the system. Um, I mean, I think I think you're a New York uh, character <laughs> and I think you make a lot of sense in New York. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder if you, if you did go to Europe, um, <laughs> I wonder whether the culture of Europe would be as receptive as the culture of New York is. <laughs> I'd be out of context anywhere else. Yeah, so. do, do you think so? <laughs> um, like I'm not really doing it for um, like fame purposes or anything like that. I just feel like, yeah, my whole, most of my adult life, like I associate with like being in New York. Yes. And yes. just most of my friends I've made, I hear, um, it just New York just feels home. Even though right. I did not spend that much time in here, it's just mm-hmm. like literally the only city where if I'm in New York, I don't have, like, fear of missing out being anywhere else. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, even, like, when you're in Paris or remember being in Berlin, I always check. It's like, oh, what's going on in New York? Like, (laughs) what are people doing there? I don't have that feeling when I'm in here. Right. Like, everything else feels secondary in a way. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any suggestions for my next dinner party? (laughs) Oh, in terms of the menu or or, or the guests? (laughs) Just. Any any ideas? Yeah. So I'm. This is kind of one of the few things that I'm able to do while being on house arrest. And I know you've been to my birthday party in yes. um, January. Uh, you should definitely invite Kelly Catrone. <laughs> that woman is a quote machine, and I think she will fit in very well. Uh, I don't know. Why don't you invite your um, parole officer? A parole officer. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. Do you think they'd I don't come? Think, I don't think they're allowed to like accept oh, invitations. Right. No fraternizing. <laughs> So, uh, and you are allowed to get on the subway to go and, and meet your parole officer, right? I'm allowed to use any mode of transportation to... Mm-hmm. Um, now, you did that okay. great, uh, was it a shoot for New York Magazine? That's right, yeah. <laughs> do you still dress up to get on the subway <laughs> like that? Um, no, not really, not anymore, no. <laughs> I try to walk, um, so I'll go to like two different places once a month to Brooklyn. They still did not transfer me. Um, okay. I live in Manhattan, but right. my first address I gave them was in Brooklyn back in 2021. Oh, right. Okay. And for whatever reason, eight months later, I'm still yeah. in Brooklyn, um, yeah. even though I'm supposed to be like with a Manhattan parole office. Right. Um, but when the weather is nice, um, I usually like walk with a friend. Okay, nice. It's a nice walk. It's, yeah. a, it's a long walk. It's like um, an hour and a half, an yes. hour, 40 minutes usually. But if you don't get a chance to get out, that's a, that's great. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. So, um, or at least like partial, <laughs> like I walk part of the way, you would take the car, right, right. <laughs> the rest. So, um, and I go to ICE once a week, uh, which is mm-hmm. downtown, 26 oh, okay. Federal right. Plaza yeah, yeah. to report. Yeah. 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 <laughs> No, so, uh, I mean, I have to say the food at your birthday dinner was phenomenal. Oh, like, you had a really great chef, and the wine was first rate. So, uh, for your listeners, if you ever get invited to Anna's for dinner, you should come because the food's great. <laughs> oh, thanks. That was, I guess, not, um, I don't cook, so. No, right. <laughs> and Kat Brynell was here, as you as you just said. I see, I see her book in, in, on your, on your uh, book pile there in the corner. Next to a very large stack of Wall Street journals, by the way, listeners. Um, so, if, if you've never been to Anna's house. It's, you know, it's small. It's an East Village apartment. There's a big stack of Wall Street journals. Uh, there's Brett Easton Ellis. There's Kat Marnell. Um, there's an Elon Musk book there. Uh, and there are also pizza boxes in the, in the corridor. So that is the- <laughs> I, uh, I had like, I was recording podcasts last night and uh, we, um, yeah, it's really hard to <laughs> keep the place. I guess this is like my biggest struggle having to host all the time. Right. Um, just like keeping the place tidy because I don't really have much storage room. <laughs> but you have chairs now. You didn't, never used to have I chairs. I know. That was the, that's a major life upgrade. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so before when you came to visit Anna, like I think there was two chairs and Anna would sit on the floor if she had two guests. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now I have like this cute vintage uh, folding chairs because I just did not, I could not find chairs that uh, would look good folding chairs. Yep. Um, it has like this high school feel and I didn't want that. I'd like, I'd rather sit on a floor than having yeah. ugly chairs. But Again, was- for those not here, Anna's <laughs> folding chairs are gold and they have this kind of um, aquamarine slash emerald velvet <laughs> upholstery. They're very chic. A friend of mine brought them over for a dinner party, and I guess they just left them here. <laughs> so it was like an accidental find. Hey, how's your art world? Uh, how's your artwork selling? Um, it's doing great. great. Um, I don't have anything here um, because everything is like with a gallery and mm-hmm. um, like loaning pieces for um, events and stuff. And the piece you see here is um, by Kenny Schachter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the piece is a. Uh, Cardboard cutout, not quite life size, but you know, large-ish of Anna with a it's wooden canvas. It's wooden canvas, <laughs> and it has an actual ankle bracelet or like a real plastic and and uh, with the straps ankle bracelet on the ankle. I interviewed Kenny um, oh, yeah. for the podcast too, and he's made this for me. We exchanged artworks. He like took um, a portrait of him. <laughs> made by me and he gave me this. <laughs> uh, I think it's wonderful. Although um, your personal styling is better now. You, <laughs> you're, 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 you're in your courtroom mode. <laughs> yeah, I don't always keep it out because I'm just here all the time. I don't want to like um, stare at myself. <laughs> it's usually in my bedroom. Oh, but, fair um, enough, yeah. Uh, but look, look, getting a Kenny Schachter original artwork, that's a score. <laughs> good, good, really? good, good for him, good for you. <laughs> So let us know where can we follow you and where can we watch your latest show. Queen Maker premiered on Hulu in May. It's going to be there for the foreseeable future. My Twitter is at Ben Whittycomb, but I don't tweet. So I don't know. Check me out anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much for coming. It was a pleasure having you. And um, I'm just looking forward to what's next. Anna, your apartment is the hottest invitation in downtown New York. And I'm so grateful for coming and having you inviting me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. (laughs) From TMZ to the New York Times. What a true Rex to Reaches story. Now I just have to think about what I could possibly do next to become interesting enough for Ben 
to write about me again. The Anna Delvey Show is a reunion audio and audio app production. The show is produced by Sean Glass, sound supervised and co-produced by John Eckhouse. Reunion audio?